baba akuzi nsuma nsuma umshole ngeshe ati abona ibunzi yamabalabala Johnny Clegg the white Zulu loved and acclaimed the world over the world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Nigerians have staged a demonstration in Lagos protesting the alleged killings of Nigerians in South Africa. This follows the recent death of Elizabeth Dubuisi. Chuku in her hotel room in Johannesburg. Nigerian social activists led by a body of lawyers protested outside the South African consulate in Lagos. The South African High Commission to Nigeria dispatched a delegation to meet with members of the Nigerian Senate on efforts being made to unravel the cause of Chuku's death. Channel Africa's Lagos correspondent, Colin Zatohenbe, has more. Fred Neves was evident in the feeling expressed by demonstrators who went to the South African consulate on Victoria Land, Lagos, to protest the death of Miss Elizabeth Ndubuisi Chuku in her room in a Johannesburg hotel, as confirmed by the South African authorities. The group was led by members of the Anambra State Indigenous Lawyers Forum, a law body from Anambra State in the southeast of Nigeria, where Miss Ndubuisi is from. The president of the body, Joe Wonkede, is speaking at the consulate, says it's very painful that the victim was murdered in a nation which is believed to be a friend of Nigeria. She's not a drug baron. She's not a, she's not a hustler. She, she, went, she went there for a legitimate conference. Well, well, well organized, known to their embassy, known to their people, known to their government for Africa insurance uh, and that woman dies. And we can no longer take it. They may think that we cannot do anything. No country has monopoly of violence. Nigerians are not beggars in South Africa. Nigerians are not hopeless people in South Africa. They need us more than we need them. What a very, very shameful, shameful reason from a country like South Africa that Nigeria contributed immensely towards their emancipation, towards their growth, towards their, their, their freedom. The response from the floor of the Nigerian Senate was equally full of hot innuendos as the issues formed part of the debate shortly before the Senate president received the South African Acting High Commissioner who had come to brief him on the steps being taken to get to the bottom of the incident. Here is a cross-section of the views expressed by the senators and the final decision on what steps will be taken to get resolved. And this is coming from a supposedly friendly country, a country that had Nigeria, Nigeria has invested so much in terms of finance, in terms of uh, capital development in terms of independence. Like this is not the first time somebody is dying in the hotel. So federal government of Nigeria must redefine our relationship with South Africa. We are a responsible country. That's why we don't take the law into our hands in the way of retaliation. But we shouldn't be taken for granted. And I think the time has come for us as a parliament to tell the South African parliament, because that is where uh, South Africans are represented fully, that we have taken enough of this and we are not going to take it anymore. Soon after the session was over, the president of Nigerian Senate, Ahmed Lawal, granted audience to a delegation from the South African High Commission in Abuja. 
Lawar said there was no reason for anyone, irrespective of nationality, to be killed. As country to country, as brothers, why should we kill ourselves? Why should Nigerians be killed? In fact, why should anybody be killed? There were times when every civil servant in this country was, was taxed for the independent uh, Southern African countries. The killing must stop. And in this era of social media, it's dangerous because it's shown in the social media. And you know, it's, it's a task getting people to resist the temptation to take revenge. The government of South Africa must do whatever it takes to protect Nigerians. We remain committed as leaders of this country to protect every South African, in fact, every resident of this country, the businesses of South Africa, and any other business from any part of the world, because we believe that all humanity has right, and that cannot be different for Nigeria. The response of Bobby Mora on the development was very detailed on what was being done to solve the mystery surrounding the death of Misindubusi Chuku. He confirmed that every sentiment expressed by Nigeria is consistent with the position of Pretoria. You will be very interested to know that the very same sentiments that we have expressed now are the sentiments shared by the government of Sabah. And I want to assure you once more that our government continues to be committed to the relationship with Nigeria. The brief history that you have touched on now is a history that all of us know. It's a history that continues to protect all of us. It is because of this shared common history that our relationship has stood the test of time. An inquest docket has been instituted at the Kempton Park Police Station in Johannesburg. We want to assure the Nigerian government of the full cooperation of the South African government and we want to reaffirm our commitment. Apart from the fillers from the Nigerian diplomatic mission at Pretoria and Johannesburg, Adetano Lubajo, president of Nigerian Union, says no one really knows what chance until the matter is fully investigated. We don't know what actually happened when we don't have... Um, full investigation and prosecution, the killing will continue because there is no deterrent to any of the criminals. Now, this thing happened in our hotel room, that is all we know. That is all we are certain, that somebody is actually dead and is, it was done in our hotel room. And we don't know whether she's a victim of crime. We don't know whether it's actually an organized crime. We don't even know if it's some of our enemies that follow her to South Africa and do that. The victim, Elizabeth Ndubisi Chuku, was the deputy director of the Chartered Insurance Institute of Nigeria. She was part of the Nigerian delegation which went to Johannesburg to attend the African Conference on Insurance where the tragedy struck. Preliminary report issued by the South African Health Services confirmed that her death was unnatural and strangulation was said to be the cause. For now, both Abuja and Pretoria are poised to see that not only would the mystery be unraveled, but it should not break the brotherly bond between them. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato Ingwe for Channel Africa News. Delegates attending the workshop on the role of the media in supporting sustainable development in Africa, currently underway in Cairo in Egypt, have called for the establishment of the African media entity. They believe such a platform will have 
carry the needs of the media on the continent and help them speak in one voice. Journalists and media experts from several African countries, including South Africa, are part of a two-week workshop. Fennel Schumer is part of the media group and filed this report. Media experts and journalists from more than 20 African states have converged in the Egyptian capital Cairo to deliberate on issues of mutual interest. Among others, the safety of journalists in war zone countries, insufficient training, intimidation and lack of women empowerment in the media industry form part of the discussions. Fatima Abbas Hassan is the general manager of the state television channel NTA in Abuja, Nigeria. She is optimistic the dialogue will pave way in reshaping the landscape of the media industry in the continent. Well, I have learned a lot from the various uh, submissions from my colleagues from the different African countries to understand that um, our situations are similar and uh, unless we resolve to change the situation ourselves, nobody will change it for us. So we have a lot to do in terms of um, creating you know, the environment for women to be empowered so that they can excel and contribute their quota towards the development of their country and then Africa in general. The workshop is organized and coordinated by the Egyptian Foreign Ministry. Secretary General of the Egyptian Agency of Partnership for Development, Ahmed Shahin, elaborates. The workshop, the the idea is to offer the opportunity for the African media to exchange expertise, exchange views regarding sustainable development in Africa and all the files uh, related. We couldn't speak about all the files, so we had to be uh, selective. The three sessions uh, of the workshop uh, was about uh, the cooperation in a general uh, manner and uh, integration in Africa. The second one was about peace and uh, development. Shaheen believes the dialogue which began this week will enable stakeholders to work together to establish an entity that will see Africa's medium speak with one voice. Uh, some number of the participants raised the idea of Africa speaking in one voice, voice of Africa in the media. Uh, they talk about how we don't uh, have this platform till now uh, versus all the international and the other uh, foreign and western uh, and news agencies that speaks about Africa. So this is an idea that has been uh, discussed in, uh, in the workshop. Definitely it needs more, more uh, discussion, uh, more study, but I, this was one of the ideas that has been uh, brought to the discussion. Dr. Abdel Wahid Majid, chairperson of the Al-Amar Center for Political Studies, is equally in support of the IDM of an integrated African media. It's a role for African media to give spaces for discussion about how can we reach this dream, how can we build this integration. In all countries, a lot of experts and specialists who can help with their ideas, suggestions, in helping decision makers in their efforts to build this integration. The two-week discussion 
will see delegates formulating a number of strategies in a bid to bring about solution to the increasing challenges facing the media industry. Fanuel Shuma, SABC News, Cairo in Egypt. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Aburengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa. Rise. Channel Africa. From an African perspective. The second day of former South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's testimony before the State Capture Commission of Inquiry was dominated by an exchange between his legal counsel and the evidence leader, advocate Paul Pretorius. Zuma was being questioned about the testimony of former GCIS CEO Temba Maseko and ANC MP Fakey Mentor, and his lawyers complained that their client was not being treated fairly. Nomalizo Mandel reports. Former President Jacob Zuma opened his testimony with concerns about the safety of his family, himself and his legal counsel. Zuma told the commission that his personal assistant was phoned by an unknown person who threatened to kill him and those around him. And this person said you must tell Zuma that we are going to kill him. We'll also kill his children as well as some people around him. So she informed me this morning. And I'm sure you recall that I said a lot about how my life has been uh, attempted. But also, my senior counsel, <coughs> Advocate Skakane, I'm uh, putting this on record because later, at some point, after the questions, I would like to come back to this issue. Yes. Because I have lost a child, and I now know what happened. Not long into his testimony relating to former GCIS CEO Temba Masego's statement, a tense legal tussle ensued. Zuma's lawyer Tabani Masugu objected to a cross-examination of his client, which he argued was in breach of the commission's rules and procedures. It's not right. We would suggest that you seriously consider that proposal of asking them to talk to him about the things that they want, to then make a statement if they want to make a statement. And then to lead him properly. Mm. This is cross-examination and his legal team. We cannot sit there and, and, and he can say whatever he wants to say. You don't. A cross-examination question, it is not practice and he's more senior than I am. It's not practice that you say, I put it to you. That's not how we identify whether cross, this is a cross-examination or not. The fact that he doesn't say, I put it to you, doesn't mean that the question is not a cross-examination question. Zuma denied ever giving an instruction that Masego be removed. In earlier testimony, Masego alleged that in 2011, the late minister in the presidency, Collins Chabani, told him that he would have to terminate his contract at the former president's behest. This, Masego alleges, was after he had refused a request by A.J. Gupta to divert millions in government advertising to the family's newly established New Age newspaper. Zuma says Chabani may have used his name to remove Masego. At times, people use the names of the president. I'm sure you had a witness here. Yes, uh, last week. I'm sure that could happen with the ministers as well. If the minister is finding it difficult to say to the DG, I'm now saying go and use the name of the president. Because I don't see why I should leave the country. Only when I'm abroad, then I must attend to this issue. 
it's a little bit, it's a little bit strange and funny. And I, 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 I never phoned uh, Chabani about uh, this DG when I was abroad, not at all. With regards to former ANC MP Feiji Mandor, Zuma told the commission that he never had any interactions with her. Earlier, Mentor testified that AJ Gubda, at his Saxon World home, had offered her a position as public enterprises minister ahead of the October 2010 cabinet reshuffle. She said she was told the position would be hers if she would agree to close down SAA's route to India. She alleged that Zuma was at the house when the offer was made. That is the essence of her evidence. Do you want to answer it at a general level or shall we go into the detail? <coughs> no, I, I had no interaction with uh, this witness, nothing. Explaining why he had in 2016 released a statement that he did not know her, Zuma says that while he originally had no recollection of her name, later upon seeing a photograph of Mentor, he realized that he knew her. When I was asked about her from the beginning, I I couldn't have any recollection. So I gave that answer that uh, I have no recollection. Then when I saw her afterwards, I remembered her. And, And therefore, she was responding to my told to the statement made by the presidency at the beginning. The commission continues with the former president expected to shed light on the testimony of former public enterprises minister Barbara Hogan. Former South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's legal team has objected to the line of questioning at the State Capture Commission claiming it's fa- it falls outside the inquiry's terms of reference. Senior counsel Tabani Masugu rose to object to proceedings as Zuma was asked about the transfer of former GCIS Director General Temba Maseko after he allegedly rejected advances from the Gupta family to channel government funding to their media companies. For more on Jacob Zuma's testimony, Morning Lives at Sakina Kamwendo spoke to political analyst Sandile Leswana. The document that Zuma had before setting up this commission was the document that came from public protector Tulima Donzela at the time. And it was a very simple document that said uh, there must be an investigation into state capture and the entities that must be investigated is Zuma and the Gupta family. The Zuma family, it was as narrow as that. And uh, Zuma looked at the thing and said, look, uh, this thing is going to take me out and take me out alone. So he expanded the terms of reference to include any type of person who could have been one way or the other at any level of government involved in any type of state capture. And he signed that, I think it was the 23rd of January last year. So basically that was that. And if you want to know what did Zuma expect out of it, he was expecting some of his comrades and other types of people to be implicated in this, not only himself. And, and that did happen. I think, I mean, some people, when they heard about Bosasa for the first time, they were blown away. So basically that is, that is where we are with this. And of course, uh, he had said this before, and he continues to hold on to this, uh, does the former president, that there is no such thing as state capture. Uh, yes, he does. I, I heard him quite well um, articulating that argument. But state capture is also a formal term, and it has got definitions uh, that were introduced to us in the year 2000 by the World Bank, based on the on the happenings in the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. 
and what state capture does is that it produces the oligarchs that you've seen coming out of the former soviet union so the question today is uh, if there has been state capture has there any emergence of oligarchs and the concrete realization of that would be people like uh, the gupta family who have become multi multi-millionaires uh, by extracting resources specifically from the state so that is that and it also involves creating certainty uh, when you t- capture the state uh, the outcome of any process of the state you need to know because you are actually driving the state uh, so you reduce certainty for yourself you eliminate uncertainty for yourself uh, but you also give the other people certainty that they are not going to get anything because you're going to get it all so coming back to former president jacob zuma and his appearance before the zonda commission and i think it uh, if uh, the outpouring of you know concern and comments on social media and of course other platforms as anything to go by south africans seem rather disappointed uh, by how this has panned out to date because as you said there was no way that the former president was going to come there and confess and implicate himself but somehow people expected it to turn out differently uh, what do you make of that i i i think uh, our people are very poor at understanding history because uh, for the longest time zuma has gone to court in front of us and we've seen how he conducts himself in court sometimes he profiles himself as a, a traditional zulu tribesman who knows nothing but this is a highly trained intelligence officer zuma is a very very intelligent highly trained intelligence officer who was trusted by one of the greatest african leaders and intellectual oliver tambo so this is not an idiot by any stretch of imagination and he's not gonna go anywhere including when they eventually take him to court and confess to anything uh, remember that as an intelligence officer he is trained in interrogation he's trained in counter interrogation he is trained to hide the truth so if we look at what he has definitely you know um made pay to for example when he talks about the former minister Nwako Ramatlodi says he was a spy um and he was recruited while he was a student in Lesotho he speaks to that and why do you think he went there because it was clear even from uh, the utterances leading up to that particular statement that he had singled out Nwako Ramatlodi why do you think that is I think we need to look at Nwako Ramatlodi as well uh, where he comes from and and this is in what I'm about to say is in Nwako's testimony um Earlier on, when Zuma fell out with Mbege, or he was fired, uh, let's not say he fell out, he was fired for one reason, because you never know what the tactics are in all of this. Um, when he left the presidency as a deputy president, he was now unemployed. Khalima Montlande was secretary general of the African National Congress at that time, set up two committees. One committee led by Lindy Wesesulu, which had members Tony Yengeni, Mwako Ramatlodi, uh, all designed and, and, and judge heath judge heath to actually defend zuma and extricate him from the charges he was facing and all the problems he had with the scorpions and the npa and ramatlodi himself at that time was facing charges uh, his own corruption charges related to cps and other deals that he, he that he had been involved in they successfully extricated zuma and Mshe came in as the head of the npa and actually dropped charges against Ramatlod and dropped charges against Zuma and they became buddies and Zuma appointed him to be the Minister of Correctional Services and so on.
That's South, Africa's, South African political analyst Sandile Swana speaking to Sakina Kamwendo of Morning Live. Johnny Clegg, the white Zulu, loved and acclaimed the world over. The world remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, Sudan's key protest group opposes giving the military absolute immunity against prosecution for violence against demonstrators. A legal expert says members of former South African President Jacob Zuma's legal team have no grounds on which to argue that the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture has treated their client unfairly. And fans of legendary South African musician Johnny Clegg express shock and sadness at the news of his death. Those are the stories making headlines. It's 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A hunger is on the rise in almost all African sub-regions, making Africa the region with the highest prevalence of undernourishment at almost 20%. This is according to an annual UN report titled The State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World. The report is part of tracking progress towards Sustainable Development Goal 2, which aims to end hunger promote food security and end all forms of malnutrition by 2030. To discuss the findings of the report, we are now joined on the line by Claudia Oltorio of the UN World Food Programme. Good morning, Claudia, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Morning, Lily. Thank you very much. Now, briefly tell us about the hunger situation in Africa and why it's worsening. Well, in Africa, the situation is alarming. 
The number of people who suffer from hunger globally has slowly increased overall. As a result, more than 820 million people in the world are hungry. Of this number, 256 million live in sub-Sahara Africa. That means one in five people in Africa are undernourished. That's 20%, Lulu. The region has the highest rates of hunger in the world, which are continuing to slowly but steadily rise in almost all the sub-regions too. That also means that undernourishment is highest in East and Central Africa, though it is rising fastest in West Africa. Noticeably, undernourishment in Africa has risen fastest in countries affected by conflict and droughts. So to answer your question, why is this happening? It is mainly conflicts and droughts in Africa. They are a big factor behind the recent increase in undernourishment in sub-Sahara. Now, does it mean that the sustainable development goal of ending hunger is out of reach for the continent? Yes. Currently, the world is not on track to meet the goals of ending hunger and ensuring access to food for everyone. In Africa, causes of hunger beyond war, climate change, and economic shocks include poverty, inequality, and underdeveloped food systems which is aggravated by poor health systems and lack of access to clean water and sanitation. However, we need to bear in mind that with more political commitments and right investments, zero hunger is still achievable. So the answer is currently no, however, it is still achievable. The chances of being um, food insecure are set to be higher for women than men in every continent. Why is this so? Absolutely. Women, sadly, are often the victims of hunger. However, they, they have a crucial role to play defeating hunger. Agricultural policies need to address the needs of women farmers and women in general. Um, generally, due to inequality, women own less land have less access to resources, livelihoods, and limited access to education. Um, At household level, we see there's inequality too in Africa, as women are primary caregivers. So when a crisis hits, we find that women are generally, generally the first to sacrifice their food consumption in order to protect the consumption of their family. How do we explain obesity being on the rise as much as hunger is. How does this happen? Well, obesity is not the opposite of hunger. Excuse me, they are linked. There are reasons for this. Firstly, fresh nutritious foods are more costly and less available than highly processed foods, which are high in fats and sugars. Also, sorry, excuse me, Also, the stress of living with the uncertainty of access to food can cause physiological changes that increase the risk of overweight and obesity. And another reason is that a malnourished child has a higher risk of obesity later in life. So Asia and Africa are home to nearly three-quarters of overweight children worldwide, largely driven by consumption of unhealthy diets.
Are there any new trends revealed by this year's State of Food Security and Nutrition World Report? Yes. The report estimates that more than 2 billion people do not have regular access to nutritious or sufficient food in low, middle and high income countries. This number was obtained by a new indicator introduced to measure you know, food insecurity. Data was obtained directly from people um, using surveys, um, asking them about their access to food in the last 12 months. Of interest, 8% of the population in Northern America and Europe face irregular access to food. This year report also has a specific focus on economic downturn. Hunger has increased in many countries where the the economy has slowed or contracted, mostly um, in in middle-income countries. However, the greatest threat is where there's a combination of drivers. There are three drivers, conflict, climate change, and economic marginalization, such as we see in the DRC, Chad, and Yemen. Now, in what way does the report help address nutrition challenges and does it offer any recommendations? Yes, it does. Um, There are many recommendations. I'll I'll touch on uh, one or two of them. Uh, But all the recommendations speak to how we must all work together. Our actions must focus on collaboration, stretching across our borders, stretching across borders from agriculture, food, water, education, social protection, policies, and so on. Countries need to integrate food and nutrition into broader efforts to reduce poverty and gender inequalities, as uh, we spoke about earlier. Tackling all forms of malnutrition through improved provision of nutrition services and improved diets is not the domain of any one sector alone. So we can't say, you know, um, oh, but this is a public's, uh, you know, responsibility. This is private sector. This is government. It, you know, it is the responsibility of all of us. The, um, the health, education, agricultural, social protection, uh, water and sanitation sectors also have a role to play, as well as legislators and other political leaders. Um, we can talk about the short and the long term. In the short term, governments need to protect incomes and purchasing power so as to counteract economic adversity. This includes social protection programs, including cash transfers and school feeding, policies aimed at reducing excessive volatility of food prices. In the longer term, countries need to invest to reduce economic vulnerabilities and inequalities, build capacity to withstand shocks that's um, climatic shocks as well, maintain health and other social expenditures and use policy to create healthier food environments. We can ask the question as, well, you know, if if there's enough food in the world for everybody and if the World Food Program is doing such a good job at reaching the people that are hungry, why does hunger still exist? Hunger still exists because many people do not have sufficient access to the abundance of food produced. The lack of access can come from structural conditions that fail to address social inequalities and poverty 
or from specific events such as natural disasters or conflicts. To eradicate hunger, we must fight poverty and inequality and ensure equal opportunities for people to have access to food worldwide. Claudia, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much. That's Claudia Altorio the, of the United Nations World Food Programme. Johnny Clegg, the white Zulu, loved and acclaimed the world over. The world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Tributes continue to pour in for late South African music legend Johnny Clegg. Clegg was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2015. The singer died in his Johannesburg home on Tuesday. The music icon leaves behind his wife of 31 years and two sons. He was 66. Zolega Kodashe has more. Every day uh, is, a, is a new day. It's, it's something which you learn to deal with. And... Family, friends, my wife, my children, they are a very important part of, of, of my support group, my team. I've been living in an empty room, walking in someone else's shoes so well. It's hard to find yourself. The curtain has closed and the mic has been hung. Clegg's battle with cancer came to an end yesterday as the singer, who was surrounded by his family at the time of his passing, took a final bow. In 2017, the Grammy-nominated singer announced his retirement from the music industry as a result of cancer. Prior to that, Clegg was fondly known as the White Zulu for his command of the language. His unique blend of African Zulu rhythms and Western pop accentuated Clegg as a symbol of change in the 1970s and 80s. His manager, Roddy Quinn, highlights the impact Clegg had in the country. I think it played a major role in South Africa, letting people learn about other people's cultures and bringing people together. Clegg's rebuttal of the apartheid regime and its systems could be noted in his work. Asimbonanga, released in 1987, was dedicated to former President Nelson Mandela and was a portrayal of the singer's unequivocal stance on non-racialism. When I wrote the song, it was like an, an impossibility that, that, that the change would come so soon, you know what I mean? And, and if, it was like a, an 11-year um, flashback. Uh, and, and I realized the, the power of music, you realize the power of the song, you realize um, there's a place uh, in, in music and in culture for very deep and very um, powerful moments to be, to be created and shared.
Fans of the late icon have expressed shock and sadness at the news of the singer's death. These fans recount the memories that they have of the music giant. You know what? This man was one of the first musicians that I knew of in South Africa and he was a movement of his own and he made us proud and I am so sorry that he had to suffer like this but I am so proud to have known his music. Wow, scattering of Africa, he's been an absolute legend. I think this man brought South Africa together. Wow. It's a real loss for us. Uh, I think he was a real son of Africa. I think his music inspired a generation of people that transcends the racial barriers. He was at the forefront of bringing uh, diversity, change. Rest in peace to the legendary great Danny Clegg, the Simbonanga, just unforeseen and he saw rest in peace. Clegg worked with Ladysmith Black Mambazo from the late 1980s. The group's manager, Kolani Majozi, has described Clegg's death as a great loss to the music industry. Oh, Babu Johnny Clegg, he's a giant and a great legend who was promoting indigenous music, not only here in South Africa, but throughout the world. And uh, he's been an ambassador of South African music and heritage. Through all the days that eat away, Government has also sent condolences to the Click family and applauded him for his efforts on social cohesion. Zoleka Kotashe in Johannesburg. In truth we have spoken that the wind has blown away. Oh, it's only you that remains with me. Clear as the light of day. And that was the legendary Johnny Clegg who died yesterday at his home at the age of 66. Our economics update up next with Shralani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Mining companies in Zimbabwe will have to use a foreign currency to pay for power. Energy Minister Fortune Chasi made the announcement at a press briefing in Harare. He says the companies will be able to make their own arrangements for imports from foreign suppliers. The minister further added that the purpose of the structure is to ensure mining entities have sufficient power. The order comes just weeks after the government outlawed foreign currency as legal tender and officially reintroduced the Zimbabwean dollar a decade after it was wiped out by hyperinflation. The lifespan of most coal-powered stations in South Africa will come to an end by 2050. This according to Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy, Gwede Mandashe, who was addressing the National Council of Provinces during the policy debate session in the House. Mandashe called on members to avoid what he called the polarized debate on energy, saying it was normally presented in the public domain as coal versus renewable energy. That is not what we're about. We're about security of energy supply for the country. 
Most coal power stations are coming to the end of their life. Many, by around 2050, they will come around, uh, to the end of their life. Majority of them between 2030 and 2040. Once updated and approved by the cabinet, the current IRP will outline technology that will replace the decommissioned coal plants. As we decommission, we should replace the lost power. In other words, it is not good enough to just say these will be decommissioned by this time without saying what are we going to do to replace that energy capacity. Mobile money operators in Ghana have been urged to reduce their charges to enhance an increase in usage of the service and promote the sustainability of the industry. First Deputy Governor of the Bank of Ghana, Maxwell Opoku Afari, says the electronic payment industry, for the electronic payment industry to be successful, products should be affordable and sustainable. He says the introduction of mobile money has helped create jobs and open up other allied businesses in the electronic payment space. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro wants to propose a free trade agreement between South America's Mercosur and the United States once he takes the presidency of the bloc during a meeting in Argentina. Presidential spokesperson Otavio Rego Barros made the announcement saying the Brazilian foreign ministry already has a draft of the request of the agreement for the president's son Eduardo Bolsonaro to become the Brazilian ambassador to the United States. And finally, General Motors Chief Mary Barra has warned the United Auto Workers Union, UAW, that the industry is facing a difficult road ahead. Barra opened talks with Labour at the traditional handshake ceremony, emphasizing that the company must be prepared to change to be better positioned for the future. GM has drawn the wrath of the union and President Donald Trump over plans to halt production at four U.S. plants, including a major one in Lordstown, Ohio. GM is attempting to sell the plant to start up company, a company proposing to build electric trucks. Workers have been told about the need for the industry to prepare for a future that will be dominated by electric and self-driving vehicles. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.93 Nigerian Naira at 10.44 Botswana Pula, 102.29 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.50 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you three 75 Brazilian Real, 62.79 Russian Russian Ruble, 68.47 Indian Rupee, 6.87 Chinese Yuan, and at 13.90 to the South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 79 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. On the commodities market, gold is trading at $1,404 and platinum at $839 per ounce and a barrel of Brent crude oil will cost you $64.60 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with Netball News. Susan Anek, the president of Uganda Netball Association, has spoken about their readiness to take on South Africa in tonight's Netball World Cup at the Liverpool Arena in England. 
Our correspondent Gesham Nyati reports. The continental netball giants have a big clash as they both seek to qualify for the semi-finals. South Africa are granted to make it if they beat Uganda who are current continental champions. Susan Anek, president of Uganda Netball Association, was optimistic of a tight match between the two countries. Fatigue and injuries should be taking its toll on this second week of the tournament where each team has played a total of four matches apiece. But the Ugandan netball chief ruled out any tropics of that nature. On the South African team, Cecilia Molokwane, president of South African Netball Association, has equally expressed the same sentiments. They are so determined to qualify for the semi-finals tonight. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe beat Barbados last night, while Malawi lost to Australia. Geshom Nyati, Sharon Africa Sports, Liverpool. On to rugby news, the Springboks will be looking to end a 10-year drought by winning this year's rugby championship title, and they will need to start on their best foot up against Australia in the opener at the Emirates Airline Park on Saturday. Coach Rasi Rasmus' men will be looking to win the competition for the first time. Since 2009, a victory that would give the box a timely boost heading into the Rugby World Cup in September in Japan. Backland coach Mzandile Stick says they are prepared for any team the Wallabies run out with this weekend. A game between the, uh, the Springboks and the Wallabies is always a, a, a big test match, uh, more especially in the championship if you look at the history of the game. Among between the two teams, so it's always going to be a tough game. So, once again, uh, I know it's probably sad not to have allowed because he was also a special player in, in their side. So, but once again, we're not going to underestimate whoever is going to take over from that role. And I've, I've seen uh, James O'Connor is, is eligible to play for their side, so one of the experienced players. And also looking at the options they've got around that position, that I think they've got uh, great players in that position that can really, really uh, cover that space. And yeah, once again, it's always going to be a big challenge to play against uh, the Wallabies. And finally, with swimming news, the South Africa's women's water polo team was better, but still no match for rivals New Zealand in their second match at the FINA World Aquatics Championships in Guangzhou, South Korea. Having been thrashed 33-0 by the Netherlands in their opener on Sunday, they fared slightly better in going down 17-4 to their Kiwi opponents at the Nambu University Aquatic Center. The scores in each of the eight minutes quarters read 6-0, 2-0, 6-2, and 3-2. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawar, Nigerians protest against killings over their countrymen in South Africa, and South Africans mourn the death of music icon Johnny Clegg. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.